Yeah. Uh, the final, the final uh, presentation is entitled God's Final Plan, The End of Evil. And um, yeah, I thought uh, a good way of introducing uh, God's solution uh, to the problem of evil and pain and suffering is by talking about the idea of justice. And justice is a little bit complicated, especially today, because um, the definition of justice uh, well, by definition, justice needs to be fair, unbiased, uh, equal, egalitarian, impartial, and we can think of many other words to kind of describe the idea of justice. But the problem is, in this day and age, it is impossible and uh, universal justice is not practiced. And if you uh, talk to some social scientists, and let me pull up this first uh, slide, they have these new terms to uh, define justice. And there's this term called the scope of justice, and it basically states that the perceived relevance of others at work in the decision or whether to apply the same fairness rules to them that are applicable to us, who are included, or different fairness rules that are applicable to others, those that are excluded. And so we want to be vanguards of justice, and at the same time, uh, we live in a society that wonders whether or not we should offer the same rights that we practice to those that are outside of our group. So a good example of that would be the refugee, um, the, the refugee issue. Like in America, we have this pledge allegiance to the flag that we quote regularly, and I'm going to try my hand off, uh, uh, try my hand at it to see if I can remember everything by heart. But basically, it says, "I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, for, with liberty and justice for all." Now, what happens is we should probably change that last few words and say uh, with liberty and justice for some, and that's probably a bit more accurate. And what takes place is we practice justice with a certain set of rules for some people and a different set of rules for others, and that's just the nature of how our society is run. If you think about what happened at 9-11, I don't know about you guys, I was standing at home um, in my PJs, well, I think I was in my shorts or something like that. Anyway, that's not important. <laughs> I was at home watching the news, and my friend said, you need to turn on to this channel right now, or you need to flip on your TV. And I go to the TV, I turn on the TV, and behold, I kind of shock horror, finally, finally realize what's actually happening, because I thought it was like a TV show at first. Now, 10 years, fast forward to the future, and they have this memorial service for 9-11, and what takes place is they recite, they have family members come to this podium and read each of the 2,974 names of the individuals that had died in, in uh, the World Trade Center. And so you can imagine this was quite a significant um, service. And basically they were memorializing these individuals who were very valuable. Now what happens is if you go to different websites and look at uh, what's been happening in Afghanistan as a response to the terrorism. We call it the war or the anti-terrorism war uh, waged by the U.S. Um, and some of the websites have inflated figures, but basically there are around 40,000 names of, or not 40,000 names, there are 40,000 individuals of men, women, and children who are not terrorists who have died uh, as a result of that anti-war or the response to that war on terrorism or the terrorist attack. And so um, basically if you were to pie chart it, um, that blue are the casualties of 9-11, and then the red are the uh, civilian casualties of uh, the Afghani um, 
citizens, if you will, and civilians. And so basically, if you go through the news, you don't really see this memorial service for 40,000 plus people and names being read by loved ones, and it just doesn't happen. And so we have this inconsistent way of practicing justice in our society. Um, And the reason why I want to uh, introduce the idea of the problem of evil uh, by introducing justice is because, um, and Anthony shared this a little bit, but basically you cannot solve evil without addressing justice. And God's solution for the problem of evil is actually is actually found in judgment and his justice. And so I want to share a few verses with you that kind of talk about God's judgment and it reveals um, how he practices justice. And uh, basically from this, hopefully we'll have an answer of how the end of evil takes place. Now I'll give you forewarning. Uh, there are a lot of Bible texts. And so I'm just going to I'm going to do my best. Some of the passages I will read through with you because I think they're important, and others I'm going to narrate to you. And if you're interested or some uh, verse kind of comes to your mind, this is recorded, and so you can go online, um, watch the video, and the, the slides will be there as well. Or if you want the notes, I can give you the notes afterwards. So here's the first thing. When it comes to God's justice, there's this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, and the passage talks about how the standard of God's judgment, the way by which he administers justice is through his commandments, his law, the Ten Commandments. Um, And it talks about at the end of this passage how God is going to bring every work and deed that we do, uh, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil, to light. And our deeds are going to be measured by his standard or by his law. Now, the reason why God uses the Ten Commandments or His law as a standard of justice is because it is something that's consistent. It supersedes race, intellect, and social status. And I suppose a natural question would be, okay, well, definitely it's very uh, inclusive and consistent, and at the same time, there are some individuals who would have never heard about God or the Ten Commandments, and there's some indigenous tribes often and who knows where, but these individuals would never have a chance to hear about God. And so here in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the passage talks about how the Gentiles, or people that are non-Jews, have by nature the things that are in the law, and they are a law to themselves. In other words, their conscience is a set of moral codes or, or laws, and God uses individuals' conscience to basically... Uh, judge as opposed to the Ten Commandments for those who do not know about him. And so um, the Bible presents this very very consistent, all-inclusive way to standardize justice. Now, there's a parable in in the book of Matthew, and it gives additional information about the judgment. And Anthony has covered a lot of this, but I found that this parable just did a nice job of summarizing everything. So I wanted to share the parable with you. Um, So in Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 24 to 30, and it says, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. 
the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he said, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. And so here are a few things that this parable um, highlights that Anthony has already mentioned. One, um, in the parable, the servants want to know why the weeds are present. In other words, it isn't normal that the weeds grow with the wheat. It's a wheat field, not a weed field. And so basically, um, this parable shows that um, in this field that's a home for wheat, it's an odd thing that the weeds are present. So in the um, original language, if you translate that word weed, it's actually a Darnell weed. And I don't know if you've ever seen a Darnell weed. Um, Curious, has anybody seen a Darnell weed? Okay. Um, I think I've got a... No. A Darnell weed is basically identical to wheat initially. When they first sprout, both look like grass. It's green. And as the weeds, as, as wheat uh, matures, it becomes a tan color. And you've got these seeds, these grains of seeds. Have you guys seen uh, that little picture on the back of the Milo containers? And it kind of shows you the difference of how the, the, the makeup of the wheat seed, it's like the germ and then the blah, blah, blah. Okay. So basically, you've got that seed, and it's symmetrical all the way down uh, for the wheat. Now, when it comes to the Darnell seed, um, instead of being symmetrical, you have one seed that comes this way and then another seed that comes this way and it's kind of staggered all the way up. And the Darnell seed never turns to become a, a gray color. Just, it's just green um, until it sprouts. And so it's very similar at the beginning and then at the end they look completely different. They're different colors. And when we were growing up, we used to play with these Darnell seeds because you could pluck them and then throw them and they'd stick in people's clothing. And sometimes it hurts, so you kind of aim for people's faces. And Anyway... Um, we didn't use it for food, and it's poisonous. So if you see it, don't eat it. So, yeah, basically, it was weird that these Darnell seeds were with the wheat. Here's the second thing about um, uh, the second lesson from this parable. The weeds are planted by an enemy. Thirdly, the separation of the weeds from the wheat are a future event. It wasn't something that was going to take place right then and there. The servants ask should we go and gather up the weeds because it's going to mess up the harvest? And the owner, the farmer, says, no, do not gather them together. Wait till later. And here are two reasons why um, he, he gives this, uh, he tells them to wait. One, if you gather the wheat with the weeds, there's a chance of plucking up the good with the bad. And so he says, let both grow together until the time is right. Secondly, Initially, the two are difficult to differentiate between. And so sometimes you can think something is a weed, but really it's wheat and vice versa. And so the farmer says, just wait. So just recapping here. Oh, oh sorry. One final thing. Uh, one lesson to learn about this parable. One final lesson to learn about this parable is that fire is involved in taking care of the weeds at the end. So just in um, just going back to review what we've discussed before, um, in God's judgment, the law is a standard. 
Two, from the parable, something new that we learn is that time is given uh, in order for judgment to take place, and judgment is a future event. Okay, So there are a couple limitations uh, that are worth mentioning about this parable. The first limitation is that uh, in the parable, the wheat are the children of God, and the weeds are the children of the enemy that practice evil. Now, the limitation of this parable is that from the biblical perspective, uh, though the weeds are burned for their evil, the wheat are not saved because of their goodness. So in the parable, the weeds are burned for their evil. But there's a limitation to this parable in that the wheat are not saved because of their goodness. Now, secondly, uh, the wheat with the wheat and the weed illustration, uh, there's this lesson that talks about uh, when you're born a weed, you're a weed, and there's just nothing you can really do about it. But this, this explanation has its limitations because from the biblical narrative, um, a wheat can always become, excuse me, a weed can always become wheat and vice versa because you can be born, but from the Bible, there's this teaching that you can be born again, which is why Jesus is so, so important in this story. And Anthony covered a bit of that uh, last night. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, it talks about this harvest, uh, which is an actual event, and it's actually recorded in Revelation. And so it talks about the judgment, it talks about this fire, and uh, I want to share with you this passage. It's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15. And so we have some parameters of what the judgment looks like, and now I want to actually talk about the, um, the execution of that judgment. And so in Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 to 15, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book was thrown in the lake of fire. So, usually when we talk about fire, we have, or usually when we talk about destruction and the end of judgment and God's justice, there's a lot of negative things attached to this. And basically, John, the author of Revelation, kind of gives this picture of the closing of Earth's history. So time has passed. It's now time for judgment to take place. And the Bible talks about this uh, sentencing and this administering of punishment. Um, Now, historically, We've had a lot of people throughout the Christian denomination that talk about the idea of hell and the idea of fire, and usually they use it as motivation to try and get people to uh, have behavior modification. And I want to read to you some of the perspectives of, uh, of, of basically what people thought in the 17th century. Um, there's an individual by the name of Samuel Hopkins, and he was a, he was a pretty well-known um, scholar at the time, and he wrote about the idea of, of this uh, fire. And he said, The smoke of their torment, torment shall ascend up forever in the sight of the blessed. 
There before their eyes, this display of divine character and glory will be in the favor of the redeemed and most entertaining and will give the highest pleasure to those who love God. And, you know, we have no idea what he thinks that God is thinking while this is going on as well. And so you've got this idea of judgment, of punishment, of this administering of justice. And this guy is kind of saying those that are not in the lake of fire are kind of going to be kind of rubbing their hands together thinking yes finally and it's this very odd picture of God and his people and what I want to do is go through a few Bible texts that talk about the actual judgment that takes place and for me it kind of brings to light what um, what this punishment and this judgment is really all about now there's this uh, psychological study where it talks about this idea of revenge. And I want to bring this up because if what he's saying is true, it paints a skewed picture of what God is like. Um, There's a psychological journal that talks about how when people seek revenge, uh, it sends a rush of activity to the area of brain that processes rewards. And so what they did was uh, they did a series of research studies where... uh, they partnered individuals up with other individuals, and they were supposed to come to an agreement. Um, both individuals c- accomplished a task, and they were both given rewards. And what would happen is they needed to negotiate what the rewards were going to be, and then um, they were in the form of tickets, and then the researchers would come, and they would uh, give the tickets to these individuals. Now, what would happen is that one individual would negotiate and say, I would like this. The second individual would say, okay, and receive the tickets, and they would have to give the, the other tickets to, uh, the remaining tickets to their partner. Now, what happened is, uh, in the test, they um, allowed a few people a special right, and rather than completely negotiating and following through with that negotiation, they were instructed to be unfair and to basically do whatever they wanted. And so here's what happened. With the test subjects that were given that freedom, One partner chose to keep more tickets, and then after that person was given tickets and he gave the remainder of the tickets to the other partner, the researchers told the person who received the tickets at the last, and they said, hey, by the way, this is what happened. You were wronged. Now, there's a second half of the research. That individual could then choose to do uh, whatever they wanted to the other individual when it came to tickets. So if they received fewer tickets, then they could choose who received more or less tickets. It's a really weird research, and as I'm sharing it to you, um, that word tickets is just coming up too much. (laughs) Anyway, here's what happened. Those that chose to practice revenge, and most people did practice revenge, ended up taking more tickets than what they actually agreed upon. So in other words, one person wronged the other person, then instead of just saying, okay, let's just be fair, they wronged the other person back. And this was across the board, consistent. And so the problem with revenge is that uh, it's often overdone, right? And what happens is, in, if this picture of God is true, if uh, hellfire is this thing that's supposed to bring joy and happiness to God's people and to God, and uh, basically he's saying that the fire lasts forever and ever, um, God is this vengeful being, and uh, if we are worshiping him, then we too become these vengeful beings. And so, anyway, um, it... it brings to mind like what happens if somebody just has a problem with petty theft and they end up being lost and then you know this person has a problem with uh he's a kleptomaniac and then he just he's lost 
then what happens? So this person steals things, and then now he burns forever and ever and ever. And so, anyway, here are a few Bible texts that uh, address that problem. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it talks about how uh, the day is coming, and this is also talking about that judgment day, when it's going to burn like a furnace. And if you look at the very end of the passage, it says, Then you will trample on the wicked, they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And basically, when it talks about this fire that burns, it's when something is burned, it's burned up, and then it's done burning. Right? If I take this piece of paper right here, and I have a lighter, and I light it on fire, um, it's burned forever, but it doesn't burn forever, if that makes sense. And so oftentimes the Bible uses this language about uh, burning forever and ever and ever. If you look at Jude chapter 1, verse 7, um, it communicates something similar, but it uses an actual real-life example. It says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And so there you have that phrase, eternal fire. Well, here is a picture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as you can see, it's not burning. But it's burnt. And the reason why... um, the reason why there's a man in that picture and he's on the ground is because there's a high content of sulfur in that area. And so if you walk around all over there, there's, there are these um, remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you can tell that there's, there's been fire, basically. So it's kind of an interesting archaeological find. But anyway, not burning forever, but burnt forever. And that's kind of the message that is communicated when the Bible describes this fire and this punishment. And so with that in mind it automatically changes a little bit the view of God when it comes to this idea of judgment and justice and punishment because it's not something that is supposed to last for the ceaseless ages of eternity. Now, moving on, there are a couple things that hell is not. Um, Already we've talked about how hell is not this eternal furnace of fire. Um, hell is also not this place in the center of the earth where uh, there's a red uh, being with horns on his head and a pitchfork and a little tail. Um, In the parable, if you remember uh, the field and if you remember the the fire that takes place on the field, uh, later on in that passage, the servants ask, or excuse me, the followers of Jesus ask him, hey, can you explain what this parable means? Um, And then Jesus responds by telling them that the field represents the earth. And so the location of hell is not in the center of the earth where it's very hot, but rather uh, hell is a time, a place in time, and it actually takes place on earth, and we'll go into that later on. So that is what hell is not. Now I want to share with you what hell is. Now, the purpose of fire... um, is very important to understand the character of God. Usually when you think of uh, punishment and uh, judgment that's uh, being uh, passed on to somebody, you kind of want to wonder, you want to know what's the motivation behind that uh, punishment? Why is this being administered uh, in this way? And so in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says here that um, hell or this place of fire is a place that is... Uh, reserved for uh, the angels and, uh, let's see here, 
Yeah, so notice here it says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. And so there's this idea that, um, and Anthony kind of covered the idea of Lucifer, this fallen angel, and the original purpose of hell is not to torment people, but the original purpose of hell was actually to punish um, fallen beings that that had rebelled against God. And so, um, yeah, the basically... One reason why uh, hell is a form of healing, in a sense, is because uh, if the root of the problem of evil, or one of the roots of the problem of even evil can be found in evil angels, if the evil angels are destroyed, then uh, you no longer have this problem of, of evil that prolongs. And so if it stops, then you know that it's not going to happen again. And so... Um, yeah, one reason why, one purpose of hell is to finish finally this problem of sin and this problem of, of evil. Also, um, this agent of pain in terms of the fire um, that's talked about here, it works because of how the judgment is administered. In other words, um, if you look back to that passage in Revelation chapter 20, I actually won't flick back there, but it talks about how... Um, when, before these individuals are punished, their deeds are read out to them. In other words, uh, when something has to be fair, it takes multiple parties to agree that something is fair. And so the picture that we're given of this judgment, of this destruction, of this punishment, is that uh, the wicked, the evil, are kind of raised up, and before God and before his throne, he reads to them all the things that have taken place in their lives. And before the judgment is administered to, or before, excuse me, before the judgment is administered, there is an understanding of, yes, I did that. And then judgment takes place. If I go to Micah and, um, let's say, two years in advance, he understands the things that I'm saying, and uh, basically he acts naughty, and I go to him and I spank him immediately. And he doesn't know what's going on, and he looks at me, and he just got hit by his dad. It's something that's very, very confusing. Now, if I go to him, and I explain to him, and we've already had, um, we have an agreement, this is bad. And he, uh, on purpose, breaks that agreement, then he knows discipline is going to take place, and it's not something that's unfair, because he knows I've done wrong, and this is something that, um, this is something that we understand there's an agreement that's made. And so what happens in Revelation is that God has his throne, he has these books, and he reads to people what has taken place so that there's understanding. Now, there's another text here that talks about punishment. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, uh, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. And so when Jesus talks about justice and whenever justice is administered, the idea of mercy is also included. And if you look at this verse, it's quite profound because Jesus talks about justice and judgment. And at the same time, he says there's something weightier than the matters of the law. It is justice combined with mercy and faith. And he's kind of... He's kind of saying that you cannot separate this idea of judgment from mercy. In other words, discipline and punishment by nature is supposed to be redemptive rather than punishing. It's supposed to be redemptive 
rather than punishing. And so there are texts here in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. In other words, in God's mind, he doesn't want a single person to be in, um, he doesn't want a single person to receive punishment. And so from now until judgment, he's doing everything he can so that people, people um, are not, what happens to the weeds don't happen to people. And so in his mind, he's trying to be redemptive. And so in discipline, even if I discipline Micah, which he's disciplining himself right now, I don't, he's going through this phase where he hits his head. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, the, the idea and the motive behind discipline is redemption. And so if you look, if you take those principles and you apply them to God as he administers punishment, usually you think of the emotion of God being anger and wrathful and vengeful because you think of, every time you think of fire, you think of the hot place, right? But in the Bible, it talks about this redemptive um, discipline that takes place. And at a certain point in time, God ends evil, God ends sin, God ends pain by using fire. So it purifies the earth and it gets rid of evil. Now, in the verse we've already discussed that time is given to both the wheat and the weeds. And there's this passage here. Um, uh, let's see here. I'll just read it to you. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. It says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, uh, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And so there's this idea where God says, don't judge for yourself. Judgment is something that takes place in the future and let God be the judge. And so there's this idea that when it comes to discipline, when it comes to punishment or this eternal punishment, if you will, um, it's something that's a future event because God is waiting for both the wheat and the weeds to uh, come to fruition. And that way um, one understands uh, what truly is evil and what truly is moral. There's, uh, there are some things that cannot be curable with time. Uh, there are diseases like AIDS. And uh, I'm sure initially when somebody went to uh, an individual and said, listen, um, it's not good to be promiscuous and it's better to uh, wait and uh, experience intimacy in the confines of marriage. And somebody says, what? Why? That's so, old, that's so old-fashioned. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then what ends up happening is more and more people are promiscuous and uh, more germs are spread with, uh, throughout people. And then lo and behold, you have AIDS in the future. And it's kind of like, well, where did that come from? And so initially, nobody's going to raise up their hand and say, yes, AIDS is a good thing, right? But then when you go back in time and talk about promiscuity, and it's kind of like, well, is that a good thing? And then at the beginning, it's just difficult to tell. Uh, I, ha- I grew up with friends and... Um, we, we grew up in this private school, and we were told regularly, drugs are bad, drugs are bad, drugs are bad. And what ended up happening is um, young men hit a certain age where they feel like they need to experience freedom. And then in America, for some reason, uh, you can get drugs anywhere and everywhere, and it's cheap. And so I would say uh, about 60 to 70% of my class, they were all partying by the time they were 17 and 18. 
And the teachers would say it, the pastors would say it, their mentors would say it, drugs are a bad thing. And it's kind of like, but it's so fun. Why, is, why, why does this matter? And what started happening is people that started taking drugs started selling drugs because you can make quick money that way. And then what ended up happening is as they were selling more and more drugs, they started getting more money, but then they started getting the attention from the police. And then they started finding out that their phones were tapped. And then some of my friends ended up in jail. And then they started realizing, maybe this isn't such a good idea. And sometimes you just need to wait for things to bear fruit in order to understand how bad evil is. And so there's this idea where God delays judgment so that people actually understand. There's also a reason for the delay in that some things are not curable, regardless of what you do. And so that's where that final judgment is administered. Uh, when I was, I, I've shared this before, but when I was uh, around 15, uh, my mother passed away. And basically what happened is my mother had a stroke and uh, she ended up going to the hospital. Now, um, I remember it was a Friday night. We had just come back from church. Uh, my dad hopped out of the car like he normally does and walked into the house. My mom opened the car of the van and instead of walking out, she fell out of the car and she kind of, yeah, just fell on the, fell on the, in the driveway. And so my brother and I are kind of wondering, well, what's, what's going to happen here? And we found out that she had a stroke. She was in the hospital and basically, um, we found out that she had mobility on half of her body and the other half of her body was immobile. And uh, she laid in the hospital for about a week, and we thought, oh, well, maybe she can still come out, and then we can take care of her as a family. And as she's in the hospital, she has a second stroke, and it immobilizes her completely. And the only thing that's keeping her alive is a respirator. And so what ends up happening is uh, the doctor's trying to explain the implications, and he's trying to explain, listen, um, the only thing that is keeping... Uh, the only thing that is keeping your mother alive is this respirator. And so you have to decide what, what you want to do. And so um, we have a family meeting, and we decide at this point in time, it, it makes more sense to let, uh, to let my mother just pass away and let nature take its course. And so um, my brother talks to my dad, and he says, listen, um, we've done everything that we can, and there's just she's not going to come out of her coma. And basically, uh, if we unplug the machine or turn the machine off, the respirator off, then we'll find out what is, what's going to happen. If she's strong enough to survive, she'll survive. And if not, then you have to let her go. Now, to this day, my brother has a scarred memory of talking to my dad, trying to convince him to, to turn off the respirator. Now, uh, when I think about why my brother made that decision, there are some things that... Um, I don't think this was the motivating factor in my brother making that decision. I don't think that he decided to turn the respirator off because he got spanked by my mother all those years ago. I don't think that he decided to turn the respirator off and end her life, per se, uh, end her life because he had feelings of resentment towards my mother. And there are moments when out of love, you end life because there's no hope. And so... When I reflect upon the family decision that we made, we came to the conclusion, turned the respirator off, and my mother passed away. And that was, that, that's something that's going to stick with our family forever. And, and whenever I think about um, that memory, I'm reminded of when God also is placed in this position where he has to decide, okay, there is humanity that, uh, where there is evil, 
there is a uh, devil, there are evil angels, and there is this place of earth, and it's constantly, uh, constantly going through this cycle of evil and suffering and pain. How do I stop this? And at a certain point in time, when people know the difference between right and wrong, God expedites judgment, and he says, now is the time to stop. And even though you would think it's kind of weird to have an act of love and to end life, it, it is an act of love. And there is healing, um, there is healing in administering punishment. And, um, and so, yeah, when it comes to uh, this idea of judgment, that fire is uh, not only purifying, but it is healing. And so God's response from the Bible is this act of judgment. So, whenever I think about this topic, I, I kind of wonder, well, what's one takeaway point, something that's practical? Like, I get why God does this, but how about for me in my life? What do I do now, today, while this evil is around me? And there's this idea where God comes and he says, the time of judgment is going to take place. It will happen sometime, and it's going to, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be final. And there's going to be a time where there is no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more evil. Until then, let me be the judge. And the challenge is, while we are living in that time, we see so many injustices in the world, so many times where we've been wronged and we want to wrong people back. And in this lesson of judgment, God is saying, let me take care of that part. In closing, there's this passage in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. And... I'm just going to, actually, I'm just going to read to verse 5 uh, for you. It says, um, and this is John talking about what takes place after the punishment is uh, administered. And half of the solution of evil, pain, and suffering is, is um, destruction. The other half of that solution is what takes place after the destruction. And in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, uh, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Bible talks about this time where after destruction takes place, uh, God recreates the earth, and he makes this incredible promise. He's finished evil, he's finished suffering, he's finished pain, and now he's saying there will be no more tears, no more suffering. And, you know, when I think about this, if you read through the rest of Revelation chapter 21, there's this picture of what that creation looks like. There's this picture of uh, this holy city that's made out of transparent gold, and um, it's just this massive, massive structure. Um, basically, if you calculate all the calculations, it's basically 12... 12 uh, 12 
12,000 miles, uh, kilometers, excuse me, 12,000 kilometers by 12,000 kilometers by 12,000 kilometers. It is just this massive structure. And whether or not those dimensions are literal or symbolic, basically what the reader, uh, the picture that the reader is given is that it's big and everybody can fit in it. And if you look at, uh, if you look at just the physical side of heaven, it's kind of like somewhat attractive where you're like, wow, it's this big place. Uh, basically, because everything is made out of gold, it kind of communicates there's no problem, there's going to be no economic problem, there's going to be no financial difficulties. But more than anything, it's this sense of uh, the need that we have as humans is ministered to in the sense that uh, there's no more separation between one another. Um, there's this idea that uh, loved ones that are in uh, that that have made it have, are, are never to experience separation ever again. There's this hope that yes, my mother passed away when I was 15 and a half, and at the same time, it's something that I can look forward to and say, you know what, I'm separated now, but when that takes place, there will never be any more separation. And more than anything, uh, there's that separation between us and God that is taken care of. Um, God himself in this passage, it talks about how God himself is going to be with his people. And everything that we have uh, experienced in our lives when it comes to insecurity and pain and the frustrations that we deal with, God himself is going to be there to minister to those uh, frustrations and that pain and that suffering. And it's just this incredible, incredible promise. Um, in commenting, there's this, uh, there's this one-liner that Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that I really like. It says... Um, Basically, now to him, and this is referring to God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And so it says, when it comes to ministering to our hearts, God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or even think. Now, think of the greatest thing that you could possibly think of right now. Just in the next three seconds. What's the greatest thing that you could possibly think of? God can do better than that. Now think of something even greater than that. And God can do something greater than that. And so when it comes to this idea of this final healing, um, and this final, um, uh, if you will, this getting rid of uh, evil, pain, and suffering, it's just saying what God can do on the other side is going to be so incredible. And obviously, um, none of us have been there, so we're not going to know until we get there. But there's this incredible promise, and we get glimpses of that in our lives today as we get to experience God in our lives. And so um, I invite you to continue on, continue on in that journey, and uh, we look forward to uh, getting to know you better as the days go by. May God bless you. passed away a year ago for, during um, a motorcycle ex- or a car accident, I should say. Um, yeah, but Shine and Marquita have been able to um, sing songs. They've been singing special items at the Rockland Church for like five weeks in a row now. Um, and it's wonderful to see how they're using their talents to praise God instead of uh, blaming God for uh, what's happened to their family. So you want to come up and share your song with us?
Thank you for sharing that song with us. Let's pray. Father God, as we think about the promise that you've given us, that one day that there will be an end um, to all this pain and suffering and evil, and one day uh, also you can uh, solve that problem even within our hearts, which is such a great thing to think about. Um, Father, we keep our eyes fixed on you, and may we be ready for that day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.